Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, film journalist, Eric Hines. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Um, if you know about the cinema of the past half century, it's likely that you know of Frederick Wiseman. He's one of the most, if not the most, formidable, emulated, celebrated, and revered of documentary filmmakers. Among his 42 films made over the span of 47 years are classics of the form such as Titicut Follies, Welfare, Domestic Violence, and recent editions such as La Danse and At Berkeley. Famously, his films are often concerned with institutions, communities, and systems rather than individual characters or a single traditional conflict and resolution style storytelling thread. And yet the films are filled with characters, with personalities and conflicts and color, and they are extraordinarily rich works of narrative. We often, if unconsciously, expect documentaries to function as authorities, to be or to at least present themselves as being inalienable, as having transpired before the camera and thus before us as fully formed objective realities. But in actuality, documentaries are handmade. They're worried over and considered and constructed. And the best of them are, are the product of the eyes, ears, sensibilities, and intellects of great artists. Artists who make choices about how to shape, present, and convey the truth of what they've seen and heard. One of the very greatest of these artists is with us tonight. Let's all watch the trailer for his most recent film, National Gallery, which is playing at Film Forum just down the street. Velasquez, Pissarro's, Rubens, Picasso, Holbein, Stubbs, Bellini, Leonardo, Titian, Turner, Rembrandt, Caravaggio, Michelangelo's, Poussin, Vermeer's, Leonardo da Vinci. So we're now in the National Gallery having a look quite quietly, but what we must remember is how this was originally intended to be seen. The National Gallery, we were talking about you know, old masters at our heart, and we are a number of things. We're conservation, research, preservation, heritage, all around the collection and education of it. We are also a visitor attraction, and I know that word's horrid, but we are also that. It's about music, film, philosophy, science. It's about life. Anything you are interested in goes into art, and that's why I became an artist. This painting got vandalised couple of months ago, some crazy guy came in with a red aerosol and I came in the next morning, it was back up there, cleaned up, perfect. Please join me in welcoming Frederick Wiseman. Thank you. 
So we're going to talk for a little bit, and then we're going to hear some questions from you guys. I'm sure you'll have some. Um, but uh, considering the time we have, we couldn't possibly talk about more than 40 films that you've made. But with National Gallery playing right now, um, and it's down the street, and if you haven't seen it, please do see it. Um, let's, I'd love to talk about um, some of the choices that you make as a filmmaker, both in what you make films about, how you make them, or you shoot them, and then how you construct them. Uh, and if, maybe let's, let's center that around National Gallery so that we have uh, a way in. Can we talk uh, in generally, and then specifically with National Gallery, how you choose your subjects, how you make your way into a place like National Gallery? I know it's different for each one. So have you always wanted to make a film about a museum? Is the National Gallery in particular something you were drawn to? Well, it's, you know, it's also a big roll of the dice. The real model for this kind of filmmaking is Las Vegas, uh, because that you know, the chance cuts through so much, so many different aspects of the filmmaking. I always wanted to do a movie about a museum, and about 30 years ago I tried at the Metropolitan in New York, and they wanted to get paid, and I never pay anybody, and uh, so I abandoned the idea. And then I was uh, skiing a couple, uh, in 2000, I think in 10, I, and I met a woman at a ski resort who uh, worked at the National Gallery, and she asked me whether I was interested in doing a movie about a museum. And I said, sure, I always wanted to. And she introduced me to the director of the National Gallery, Nicholas Penny. And I went to see him, and he said, OK. Uh, when it's interesting that he's. If I hadn't gone skiing, I wouldn't have made the film. <laughs> and then, and, and so there's never, you don't, obviously, you're not going to pay for the Met, and you're not paying for the National Gallery. Um, is there any discussion that happens as far as like what? Your, what you intend to do, what you intend to focus well, on. I, I, I say, as I said to Nicholas Penny and to the other people from whom I've requested permission, that uh, I want to be around for anywhere from six to 12 weeks. In the case of National Gallery, it was 12. Uh, that I don't do any research in advance. That the shooting of the film is the research, that I accumulate a lot of footage. In the case of National Gallery, it was 170 hours. Um, that uh, uh, if there's anything they don't want shot, they have to tell me in advance. Uh, and in the case of National Gallery, the only thing I couldn't shoot was executive committee meetings where they were discussing personnel issues. Uh, I, w I had a pass. Where we weren't accompanied at all. I could go there any time of the day or night I wanted. And the people in the National Gallery didn't see the film until it was completely finished. Mixed, color graded, everything. And do you know uh, before you start what you're looking for and what you no, might I have no on. idea what I'm looking for. I, I, I make uh, the assumption that the subject that I, if I hang around long enough at the place that I've chosen as the subject of the film, they'll come across enough material out of which I can edit a film. But I, I try to approach it uh, with, a, with an empty uh, uh, mind uh, and uh, uh, and just uh, be open to whatever the experience is uh, I at the place. And then the, the uh, and then I have to, it's the, old, it's the old bromide about the sculptor finding the statue under the stone. I have to find the film under the rushes. And it's the opposite of doing a fiction film. In a fiction film, 95% of it is planned and written and planned in advance. And you shoot what you storyboarded, et cetera. Uh, here, uh, 
I have to study the rushes, and out of the study of the rushes and trying out lots of possibilities, the film emerges. And a lot of the time with documentaries, you'll run into filmmakers who've spent six months, a year, two years with a subject, and they gather that footage, and then they try to bring that down. And in, number, in terms of number of hours, it's actually not that dissimilar from the number of hours that you get. You go extraordinarily deep for those eight to 12 weeks. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that entails? Well, I mean, uh, at the National Gallery, I often got there at eight o'clock in the morning, and many days it didn't close until 10 o'clock at night, or even if it closed, I could still hang around. So there were long days at the National Gallery, and in the evening we watched rushes, um, and I think I took two days off in the 12 weeks that I was there. For me, it's important that I be completely immersed in the subject matter, and one thing often leads to another, and you can't sort of work a day and then come back three days later because you lose the thread and you lose uh, the informants, and I use informants in the best sense of the term because the people at the place know more, much more about it than I do, and I'm very dependent on them saying to me, oh, Friday at two o'clock there's a meeting or you ought to be uh, uh, in the uh, restoration department at uh, uh, 10 o'clock uh, Saturday morning because there's gonna be a group of Dutch restorers coming in. Uh, and that, that's how I find out what's going on and I make, when somebody tells me something, I make a little note of it. And considering how many different layers, and you see the film, you, you can see that it's, it's shot on the floor of the museum, it's shot behind the scenes with the restorers, with the programmers, with administrators, there's all these different sort of aspects and layers of this institution that you make your way into. Are you doing that systematically, or are you bouncing around over the course of the time? No, bouncing around, I mean, systematically in the sense that I know I wanna go to all those places, but it's not as if the first four days in the restoration department, the next two days in the scientific department, it's partially chance and partially somebody telling me that they think something interesting is going on at the particular time. And sometimes it's just wandering by and you see a group of people in the room and you go in and you know, see what's going on and sometimes nothing is going on and sometimes something really great is going on. Right. And and I, I, I've asked you this before, but I think it's interesting uh, to, to address, which is um, the degree to which the camera is running, how often the camera is just running, whether or not, whether or not something in that moment is what oh, you want. Uh, yeah. I always, once I decide something is worth shooting, I, I, we continue right to the end of whatever is going on. Because if there's only one rule that I know of in this kind of shooting, and if you try to anticipate what somebody's gonna say or do, you're inevitably wrong. Uh, so the safest thing to do is, if you make up a mind a sequence is worth shooting, you shoot all the way through. Because you know that the moment you stop, that's gonna be the magic moment. Right, right. Um, and is there anything in particular in this, for this subject that, is there any aspect of this that you felt that you wish that you had more time, that you wish that you could have made the entire film about any one of these aspects? No, no, because I never want to make an entire film about any one of the aspects. The place is always the star, whatever that means. But it's always a movie about a place and the kinds of relationships that exist and, and the uh, application of whatever, whatever ideology the place uh, either does represent or seems to represent. Mm -hmm. and, and you direct and do sound and edit your own films. And the right. sound aspect of it is interesting to me because um, it's not your camera that we're seeing when we're seeing the film, but it would seem to me that you're 
that in recording sound, that that acts as a, as a form of direction to some degree. Well, it does. I mean, that is the way I, uh, I, off, I lead with the mic. And, and I mean, y you can't make a good movie without a good picture and good sound. Um, and um, you have to try and get them both. And, and so if we could just back up a little bit, um, how did it come to pass that that became your way of doing that in terms of sound rather than... than well, by doing the, the sound, it gives me more leeway to see what's going on and make the choices about what I want shot. In terms of if you're looking through the lens? If you're looking through the lens, you've got one eye. The cameraman has one eye on the lens, one eye on me. I have one eye on him and one eye on what's going on. Right, right. And, and you work with some of the same camera people? Yeah, I've worked with, well, I've worked basically with two over the years. Uh, one for about 14 or 15 years and the other for about 30. Mm-hmm. And, and what I think is also, and, and I sort of hinted at this a little bit in my introductory comments, is that there is an aspect of this that um, I think that your films, it's, it shows you the impact that they have and the impression that they make for what they capture, but there's this idea that, that there's no, that there's no inter that you're just, you're just ro rolling film and, and the camera's running and then you've, what, whatever you happen to be there for is what the film is, when yeah. in, instead... Yeah, that's... Uh, that's a naive idea which has been encouraged by the digital revolution. Right. Uh, because there are, li I mean, I haven't done the math, but there are probably millions of choices involved. And it's not simply a question of putting the camera in a corner in the room. That's why I detest the term observational cinema um, or direct cinema or whatever, some of those other noxious phrases. Uh, because everything involves choice, choice of subject matter, when to shoot, how you shoot it, when to stop, uh, uh, how you're going to use it, uh, where it's going to be placed, uh, um, whether there's sound transitions, so when, when you use cutaways and reducing a sequence from an hour and a half to six minutes, etc. I mean, there literally are millions of choices. And it's, <clears throat> it's not the avid editing machine that makes the choices. Somebody once wrote a review of one of my films and said the film would have been a better film if I had edited it on an avid rather than a, a flatbed, a, a Steenbeck, a regular editing machine. And it, 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 I thought it was very funny because it, it suggested it was the machine or the program that made the choices. And whether you're editing digitally or editing on film, in the case of my films, I'm making the choices. And the choices are no different. Uh, uh, whether you use uh, editing, uh, editing digitally or you're editing on film. Mm -hmm. and, and literally, your process has been the same between the two. Uh, yeah, the process is exactly the same. So let's talk a little bit about that process, because you said in the beginning that it, you know, with, with a fiction film, you've got a script that, 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 that dictates the shape of things. You don't know what you're going to get and you don't know until you sit down to start editing what, what shape this is going to be, or even in a sense what the film's going to be about. Oh, I have no idea what the film's going to be about until I'm well along in the editing, maybe six or eight months into the editing. Mm. Uh, because what I do, I can briefly go through the... Sure. When I come back, during the shooting, I watch silent rushes. Uh, sometimes now digitally I watch uh, uh, synced up rushes. When I come back... I look at all the rushes and I make notes about them. That usually, in the case of National Gallery, probably took me a couple of months. 
at the end of that couple of months, I had I put aside about 50% of the material, and I had notes on all the material. Then over the course of the next eight months, I edited all the sequences that I thought might make it into the final film. And it was only, and I, and I edited those in close to what I thought at the time would be the final form. Um, and then when I have all those so-called candidate sequences in edited in a close to final form, I then begin working on the first assembly of the material. And then I do that in maybe three or four days because at that point I know the material extremely well and I can make the changes quickly because everything is, is usable. That, uh, uh, and that first assembly comes out to about 30 or 40 minutes longer than a final film. And then in the course of the next six to eight weeks, uh, I work on the internal rhythm within the sequences and the transitions uh, between the sequences and uh, fiddle around a lot with the order. Um, and then when I think the film is finished, I go back and look at all the rushes all over again to make sure there's nothing I've forgotten or something, I come across something that uh, solves an editorial problem that I hadn't adequately dealt with previously. But at least 50%, I don't know what the percentage is, but at least 50% of the editing has nothing to do with the technical aspects of editing. It has to do with responding to the question why. Editing, it's an analysis of human behavior and you have to figure out what's going on in a sequence why people use the words they do. Why do they move left rather than right? Why does somebody interrupt somebody else? Why does somebody ask for a cigarette at some crucial moment? Uh, is it for a change of the subject or just want to smoke? You, you have, whether you're right or you're wrong, you have to be able to explain, to understand and explain the behavior of the people you have in the rushes. Because if you, if you don't do that, you can't make the choices. And you can't, uh, for example, in at Berkeley or in, uh, some of the chancellor's cabinet meetings were an hour and a half long. The executive committee meetings at a national gallery were sometimes two hours long. Um, as they appear in the film, the most, the longest is maybe seven or eight minutes. And that seven or eight minutes is assembled from all over the place. It might be 30 seconds here, 20 seconds there, 80 seconds there, but edited together to appear as if it took place the way you're seeing it in the film. So you want to create the illusion, however transitory, that it happened that way. But in order to do that, you have to at least convince yourself that you understand what's happening and that the way you edit it is an accurate and fair representation of what you observed initially during the shooting and what you thought during the editing. And is, is that something that is a, an actual struggle between um, giving a fair and accurate representation and making it work within that larger narrative, that tapestry, the artistry of that. I don't, I don't know if it's a struggle, but it's work. Yeah. Because it has to work in a variety of levels. It has to work in terms of coherence. It has to work in terms of fairness. Uh, it has to work uh, visually. It has to work rhythmically. Uh, it has to be clear. You have to provide enough information so that somebody who wasn't present and hadn't studied the rushes can understand what's going on. And all those elements are constantly being juggled mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and you have to, you know, and you, you have to be aware of them. It's obvious, I mean, it's obvious you have to be aware of them, otherwise you can't make the choices. Uh, and that's why this kind of filmmaking has absolutely nothing to do with 
you know, buying a digital camera and turning it on and make, becoming a filmmaker. Right, right. Well, I think that's the great, though that's a, an inaccuracy when people have that assumption, to me, in a sense, it's a compliment to your ability to make those seven and a half minutes seem like it's the extent of a meeting, you know, well, that, I mean, that, that... That's the effort in any film. Uh, yeah. because you, you have to at least initially, could, even if you're wrong, you have to convince yourself that it works. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about um, the larger structure of what you assemble, as well as, as you're saying, there's this sort of those, those scenes that you're giving integrity to, but then working within larger tapestry. But then that, lar that larger um, work is not necessarily like a lot of other films. Is there, a, is there a, a, a metaphor that helps you or a different type of art that helps you in terms of relate that you relate to that is it music is it novelistic is there something that helps along those lines you know, it, it's i mean i i mean the whole question of influence is one that i you know not don't necessarily understand but i think it to if to the extent that i'm aware of the kind of things i've been influenced by it's been much more novels and poetry than it is film um, and i think my films are novelistic rather than journalistic. Uh, and because I, and when, when my films or anybody else, anybody's films works, it works, I think, because it, uh, it has to work on two levels. It has to work on the literal level, who says what to whom, uh, what's going on, where are they, et cetera. But it has to work on an abstract or metaphoric level, which means what are the ideas that are being suggested by the sequences you used and the way you uh, order them. Okay. And, and I think uh, any film has to proceed on both those tracks simultaneously. Right. And the real film is in the relationship between the two. Right. Uh, we're just going to watch a clip from the film so we can watch, in particular, I think what we were just saying a moment ago about uh, collapsing what, what is a sort of actually in real time a longer piece, uh, a longer real conversation that you've whittled down to something that's a little bit shorter. So let's watch this from, from National Gallery. I want you now to imagine, if you can, that you are inside that church which you see as a model and into which this altarpiece was once placed. So no big windows, obviously no electric light, but a space like this with very narrow windows. The light would be filtering in. You're not in the National Gallery, you're inside that church. That's a very short clip. Uh, uh, and the, the, the original event was probably about 20 minutes, and the, as it is in the film, it's probably about three. About three. And yeah. As you saw and heard it, it was about 10 seconds. <laughs> um, so what's interesting, what, just seeing that very brief clip, um, she's an incredibly charismatic um, woman who does a fantastic job of addressing these people in the gallery about this painting. Um, it's a painting? Another, that work? Is it's it technically? A, it's a correct? 13th century altarpiece. Altarpiece, yeah. yeah. Um, what's remarkable is that we don't know anything about her. We never learn anything about that woman. We get her in this environment speaking well, about this. It depends this what you mean by knowing about her. You, uh, you don't know her name, you don't know her training, you don't know whether she has a PhD or not, you don't know whether she's married and has children. But you do know, when you listen to her for more than 10 seconds, 
that she's very knowledgeable about what she's talking about and uh, is making a very clear and, and lucid uh, exposition of, uh, of the painting. So that's quite a bit. Oh, it's quite a bit, and I think it's plenty. But uh, can you speak a little bit about what, how that functions in your film, rather than if you were to take it the different tack, if you were going to go deep into her and tell us everything about her, rather than what we get to know about well, her I and mean, how that I, functions in your yeah, film? Yeah, I've been criticized for, in this movie and also for the two ballet movies that I've done that I don't identify, for example, in La Danse or ballet, who the dancers are. Uh, but... My feeling was if people knew a lot about dance, they would recognize the dancers. And if they didn't know about dance, the fact that uh, I said that's Agnes Letestu or Aurélie Dupont wouldn't mean a thing. And if I did that, I wouldn't know where to stop. Would I just do it for the Etoile dancers? What, what, what about the principal dancers? What about for the core? What about for the ballet masters? What about for the choreographers? And, and the print would completely ruin the image. And it's equally true here if I... Uh, identified the paintings or identified the speakers, it becomes too didactic. Part of my job as the editor is to provide you with enough information so you can understand the sequence, but, not, uh, but understanding the sequence doesn't necessarily know that that woman, for example, has a PhD in art history from Oxford. Well, and I think that it, it means that these sequences will have an integrity that sequences in other films don't have in the sense that, and, and, and I think this speaks a little bit to what you're saying about the challenges of making it work rhythmically, um, uh, you know, and, and the sequence work on its own terms as well as within the larger film, is that you allow things within these sequences, or you show things in these sequences that you often don't get in terms of, there's, there's space, there is, there is, there's, the, there's the full shape of sentences. You get, uh, you know, there's sort of like, there's an integrity to the rhythms of that, of what happened in that, in that room. And why is that important to you? Because a lot of people will do jump cuts and as such to sort of make sure that they whittle it down to the words and to exactly what matters. Well, I, I feel I have an obligation to the people who gave me permission to film them and record their voices to make something that, you know, fairly, the word I use rather objective is fair, to, to make either a sequence or a film that fairly represents what's going on. Of course, fear is completely subjective. It's my judgment, it's my choice, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, I work very hard not to distort the material. For example, you can make fun of anybody in a film, but if, if, if the comedy emerges from a manipulation by the filmmaker, it's the filmmaker who, who is the fool. But if the comedy emerges from the situation, well, then it's just a funny situation, which you happen to have a chance to be present at and use in the film. And I think uh, the former is not all right, and the latter is. Right. And you have an infinite possibilities for doing the former. You can make anybody look yeah, you funny. You can make anybody. But actually, you can make anybody look like an idiot. But ultimately, the person who looks like the idiot is you. <laughs> of course. I see that. Um, do you, how do you feel, we talked about, you mentioned how you feel about terms like direct cinema and, and you didn't say verite, but I know you're not a fan of that either. Um, how do you feel about documentarian? I just think I make movies. Yeah. I mean, the, the word documentary, at least maybe is my generation, but when I was growing up, the documentary was like, you know, people used it 
uh, they applied it like the term Exlax. It was supposed to be good for you <laughs> yeah. uh, right. and make you a better person. Uh, and I think I make dramatic narrative movies, mm-hmm. which happen to be based on real experience. Re, uh, people's real experiences. Do you feel at all that the way that we talk about films and documentaries in particular has finally caught up to that a little bit? Do you feel like there's more... It depends of- who's talking. Because I don't see a lot of movies, documentaries, or any sort, but some of the documentaries I see, uh, they're, they're, they're too simple-minded. They treat the audience like idiots, and they're con- as a result, they're very condescending, or they're trying to sell a political point of view or a particular ideology, uh, which isn't very interesting because it ignores the complexity, the actual complexity of the subject matter. Right. And I think you're presenting, would it be fair to say that you're presenting the complexity of the subject matter at the same time as there's a lot of yourself in these films? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, sure. I think there's a lot of myself in the film because I'm making the choices. Right. Uh, but it's an indirect expression. When I said, I think the movies are more novelistic than journalistic, that's why I said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think there's a l- lot of a writer in any novel, except it's, it's indirect. The point of view is indirect, very indirectly stated. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular about this? I mean, for me, I'm very moved by this film. Um, and in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect for the form that it takes. Um, and I relate to it as a critic. I relate to it as a, as a writer, as an artist. Um, and I wonder if you had that experience as well, if you related to these people and, and what their work was. Oh, I, I, I did. I mean, I had great respect for the people who worked there. And I, I, I hope that that respect is conveyed in the film. And of course, it was a fantastic opportunity to be at the National Gallery every day uh, for three months and look at all these wonderful paintings. Yeah. And often, I, you know, we, we would go in there and the gallery was empty because it was before it opened or after it closed. And you, know, you felt like the late Shah of Iran. It was your personal uh, gallery, at least for 20 minutes. And, and you don't do interviews for your films. With something like this, are you tempted at all to ask questions because you have them? No, no. You know, that's just a matter of liking one technique rather than another. Uh, And and, and sometimes, as in National Gallery, you come across film crews using a different style, and I sometimes shoot those sequences because I think they're funny, uh, and they illustrate the contrast between the two approaches to film, or more than two approaches to filmmaking. Sure, sure. Um, there's a, I'm going to read just a quote from, uh, I think it's this is basically the last words said in National Gallery. It's not a spoiler, but I think it's be worth sort of saying and, and, and t- talking briefly about. It says that there's a poet called uh, Joe Shapcott. Is that right? Okay. And, um, and she says, and this is a quote, the fact that language isn't perfect, the fact that when I say the word hand, it is not my hand, is really beautiful and poignant to me. In a way, all of my poems are efforts to translate something else, and they, never, and they never quite do, but the meaning is all in the gaps. And to me, I feel like almost every scene of the film is about those gaps and trying to somehow close them as best as you can, but it's an imperfect science. It's an imperfect science to restore a painting because there's no way to get it back to the way it looked the day that it was finished. Um, and to me, that also felt a bit um, of the imperfection of what it means to somehow 
convey what you were there witnessing into, into a film. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, you, you, you never get it all. I mean, you, it, it's always an approximation, and, but it, nevertheless, it can have a dramatic form, and you know, it can you know, work up to a certain point. But I mean, basically, you do the best you can, and uh, you know, chips fall where they may. And there's a great beauty in that then, too. I think knowing that and acknowledging that, and that, being, that acknowledgment being part of the process, allows for, sort of, I think, for yeah. really great beauty. You know, it's the, what's the cliche? Uh, it's never finished, it's only over. And have you always felt that way about your films? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I don't linger. when I, I feel like I know when it's over. But it could be because I'm tired or I want to go skiing or... Uh, <laughs> Which I think is healthy, that you always have that. Um, I wonder if we should ask, see if anybody has any questions. Yes? Um, so you've been making, you've made about 42 films, right? In 47 years. How did you get into making movies? What were you watching as a kid? Tell me everything. I'm curious. Tell you everything. How much time do you have? Um, no, I, I was always interested in making movies. I, uh, I made a, a wrong turn, but I went to law school. Uh, and I went to law school basically to avoid the Korean War. Um, and then I hung out in Paris for a couple of years after I got out of the army, when the war was over. Uh, and I started to shoot movies in eight, in eight, eight millimeter and super eight. And then I came back to America and I taught law for a couple of years and hated it. And, uh, and you know, that was so long ago, it was before the proliferation of film schools with $40,000 a year tuition. And people want to make movies just either apprentice themselves to somebody else or started to do it. Well, I, I worked on the production of a film and that demystified the process of filmmaking for me. And so I decided I could try and do my own. So I did. And in make, the first film was a film about a prison for the criminally insane and in doing, which is called Tidicut Follies. And then in doing that film, I realized, you know, uh, I had the idea of doing an institutional series. And it seemed to me that the appropriate follow on film to a prison for the criminally insane was a high school. Uh, uh, and so, you know, then I started to do... Uh, well, that's, that's a twofer. Uh, uh. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of a project that you assumed, like you said you have with the projects, you think it's going to be interesting and I'll do my best, and panicked and found out that it wasn't interesting? Not yet. But also, I may have deceived myself and continued. Do you have a list of potential projects for the future, or do they come organically over time? Well, no, no. Uh, I have a list of potential projects, but I don't always follow the list. I mean, and I, I was finishing a film one time, and I had to go to the dentist, and I was in the dentist's office reading People Magazine, which is the only place I read People Magazine, and there was an... Uh, uh, an article about a model agency. And I realized, yeah, a model agency, that sounds like a good subject, so I... And that was next. Though. That was, that became, you know, right at the top of the list. <laughs> There's something really delicious about the idea of People Magazine being something that inspired you to make a movie. Well, it, w it was the model agency. <laughs> uh, Fred, I just wanted to say it was your film, Titicut Follies, that turned me into a documentary filmmaker. 
and now I have the great pleasure of teaching your work at Tisch in the documentary program. Um, I, but I wanted to ask you a question. I was very interested when you said that uh, when you shoot, uh, you let an event play itself out because you don't want to stop filming. Uh, this must have changed, though, uh, after you stopped working with 16mm, because with 16mm, you must have had 150 rolls of film or 200, and I don't think you would have been able to just say, I'm going to let every event play itself through. Uh, so would you comment on how your choices or the uh, decision-making process regarding your choices might have been changed by a change in technology? Well, it hasn't, because uh, for the... I mean, uh, the films were shot on film up. The last film that was shot on film was La Danse. And so that's uh, three, three or four films ago. Um, and I think in digital, maybe shooting a little more, maybe 10% more. But uh, I always, in film, I always, always felt it was necessary. I, I've had this view it being necessary to shoot a lot from the beginning. Um, and this whole issue of digital being cheaper, when you look at it, isn't necessarily the case. Because now, in order to preserve the film, the final film, you, the best way to do it is to make a 35 millimeter copy. Because, uh, because digital only lasts about five years. So now I'm faced with the expense, which is at least thirty-five or forty thousand dollars a film, of making a thirty-five uh, negative from the HD master in order if I want the film to last more than five years. And with all uh, changes in technology, nobody's yet, as far as I know, nobody's yet figured out a way of uh, preserving the film. I mean, preserving the HD masters. Can you talk a little bit about how you've distributed your films? And I think early on you decided to self-distribute. So I was wondering why you decided to self-distribute early on. So self-distribution and how you've distributed. Oh, I, I decided to self-distribute early on because the first two films I made, I got screwed and cheated uh, by the distributor that had them. So there was 100% margin of error. I mean, I, Grove Press was the distributor of, the first, of high school in Tidicott Follies. And I discovered that they were making a lot of money and I wasn't getting anything. So it, it was an easy decision and, and, and the smartest, you know, from a business point of view, one that I ever made because now at least, I mean, I hired somebody who likes the movies who flogs them for me. And if, 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 if she's successful at doing it, the money comes in and we get to keep it. Uh, and uh, so it, it worked out. I mean, I, I'm, it's a lot of work. Uh, sorry? Yeah, work. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at least some income came in. And would you make that decision now in, in today's Well, I don't situation? know enough about the alternatives now. I, I'm still doing it. I've had one person in charge of the distribution of films now for the last 33 years. Um, and the, well, the difference is a distri DVD distributor will take 80% of the income. Whereas if you do it yourself, your volume won't be as great, probably, but 100% is yours. I think but it is a lot of work. <laughs> right. I think that's all we have time for. So 
Everyone, thank, thank you, Frederick Wiseman. Thank you very much. <laughs>